people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. You know, I'm all in favor of reducing paper. I'm a modern guy. I'm in the digital age, but uh, this week, our beloved Congress took one more step to making our Constitution irrelevant. Last Thursday, you remember last week, we talked about the Trans-Pacific uh, deal and how I was against it, not so much because I was against it, but because I didn't know what I was against or for. Our congresspeople had not read the 800-page document. It was locked in a sealed room. They had to get permission to go in and all that kind of stuff. And most of them didn't take the time to do it. And it was shot down. I was very excited about that, although I was somewhat distressed that I had agreed with, and this pains me even now, I had agreed with Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats. Most of the Republicans voted for it. But it got shot down, so I felt better about that. And then I read a statement, I forget who put it out there, uh, that the House was going to pass it. Eventually, they gave themselves till July 30th uh, to get it done. And then Thursday, all of a sudden, at 12.30 in the afternoon, they voted on it and passed it, giving President Obama a fast-track ability on tariffs and trade agreements. Now, the thing that gets me about this is there's three international trade deals here, the uh, TTP, the TTIP, and the TISA, and I'm not going to go into all the details. Let's just call them uh, international trade deals. But each one of those agreements, each one of them contains a section that would end important aspects of the sovereignty of each nation that signed up for it. Now, this sets up, these agreements set up an international panel composed solely of corporate lawyers to serve as arbitrators in deciding cases brought before the panel to hear lawsuits by international corporations accusing a given nation of violating that corporation's rights by its trying to legislate regulations that are prohibited under the trade agreement. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of, lot of words, a real mouthful. But essentially, what it does, it puts in the, the hands of corporate attorneys. Now, I got nothing against attorneys. Some of my best friends are attorneys. But a corporate attorney, especially on the international level, We'll look out for who's writing the paycheck. 
and they will uh, one country will be able to sue another over increasing the percentage of a nation's energy that comes from renewable resources, or they'll penalize corporations for hiring people uh, to kill labor union uh, organizers, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not in favor of killing labor union organizers. I got no problem with uh, labor unions per se. But it will also... um, they people could uh, com- countries could file charges or lawsuits, uh, charging forcing countries to lower the amount of a given toxic substance that a nation allows in its food. You remember last week we talked about the fact that certain labeling will go away. You won't be able to choose. You won't be able to know whether your food has uh, GMO or genetically modified, or where the the uh, toxin levels are in a given food. Now, I'm not one to get too excited about the FDA sticking their nose in my business. We're going to talk a little bit about the FDA a little later in the show. But I do have a lot of confidence in products, pharmaceuticals, and food from my own country. And I don't have a lot of confidence from products, pharmaceuticals, and food coming from other countries, especially when I don't know which country it is. But they're very specific that this arbitration board, made up of corporate lawyers, that their decision cannot be challenged. And if the treaters are signed, each country that signs it, those arbitration board decisions by corporate attorneys will override the signatory nation's constitution. So in Congress, putting fast track on these things, They're essentially taking our Constitution and possibly, in some areas, making it moot. Now, I was against the TPP. I was against against this Trans-Pacific Pact. Now, it's, it's with 11 nations and the United States, so that's 12. But for those of you that listen to me for a while, you know I am for free trade. Now, back in 1930, 1930, it's a while ago. I wasn't born yet, for those of you that are are speculating, okay? I'm not as, uh, not as old as I sound. But in 1930, Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill. And this put heavy tariffs on imports. And the idea was they wanted to protect U.S. companies and jobs during the Depression. Within one year, one year of Smoot-Hawley, 25 major trading partners had retaliated with their own tariffs on American goods. World trade declined sharply 
and the depression was made worldwide and longer lasting. Now, a tariff is really just a tax levied on a foreign good. It's designed to help a special interest at the expense of the American consumer. Now, we think of ourselves as a free trade nation. No, we're not really. It takes more than 700 pages just to list all the tariffs that we have on imported goods and another 400 pages to inventory all the non-tariff restraints, such as quotas, orderly marketing agreements, that kind of stuff. So we are not a free trade or uh, nation, but every time we do this, every time we, we put on a trade, every time we put on a trading restriction, the countries that we're trading with retaliate, and they do similar or worse. All the trends are toward more subsidies for U.S. exporters and more prohibitions and taxes on imports. The more you do that, the higher the cost for you and me. Now, Ron Paul has been a big advocate for free trade. But we're getting more and more of an attitude of protectionism in Congress. And we have to fight against it. we got to have free trade. Protectionism makes us all poorer, except for certain special interest groups. If you're in that special interest group, you're in good shape. But it also increases international tensions. If we look back at Ludwig von Mies... Ludwig von Mies is one of my favorite guys to read. Sometimes it's a little deep, but he was a brilliant man. And he said, when people and goods cross borders, armies do not. So we got to have free and extensive trade unsubsidized between all the nations. This lowers tensions, makes us all better off. And it's morally and economically the proper policy. So it's very important that this is going through. Why did it go through uh, on Thursday? Eh, Tell you what. Take a look at the headlines and see if you can figure it out. And drop me a note on my Facebook page at uh, Economy of One on Facebook. Up next... Let's take a look at the latest leader in the world getting in on the climate change. This is interesting. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, we have a new champion. New champion in the world of climate change. And uh, not sure how I feel about this. Actually, I am pretty sure how I feel about this. It's uh, uh, it's the Pope. And uh, the Pope has issued a encyclical, I think that's how you pronounce it, 
the it's essentially a declaration to all Catholics, but uh, he really means it to uh, be for everyone uh, on the planet. That's how he sees himself. But uh, he's coming out and saying that uh, essentially capitalists are plundering the earth at the expense of the poor and of future generations. He used very passionate language, and it's it's probably going to be very divisive. And uh, where he blames human activity and special interests for holding back policy responses, and uh, all of this is contributing to global warming. To get a little flavor for the angle he's coming from, he says the global north owes the global south an ecological debt. Now, he's from Argentina. So I'm assuming he means south of the equator. So all of us north of the equator are causing all kinds of problems to the poor south of the equator. Now, he wrote a 183-page document about this, and he says economic powers continue to justify the current global system where priority tends to be given to speculation and the pursuit of financial gain. As a result, whatever is fragile, like the environment, is defenseless before the interests of the defied market, which become the only rule. What he's essentially saying is that we need to give up free market, give up market economics, give up capitalism, because apparently there are poor people in the world being damaged by the fact that, his opinion, global change is happening because of human activity. Now, this is something that we talked about before, that I warned you about before. He quotes a very solid scientific consensus. Well, you know what? No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, Noah came out or a report came out today on Noah's data about global warming. And uh, they changed the data. They massaged the data to get to the result they wanted to get. But the Pope, in issuing this encyclical, shows you the attitude of the environmentalists. He says, we need a change of lifestyle, of production, and of consumption in order to combat this warming, or at least, at least, the human causes which produce or aggravate it. Now, that's that's definitive, isn't it? That's a consensus. That whole statement says nothing. It's amazing to me because it's all about capitalism. He talks about economic justice, and he criticizes capitalism throughout the entire document, 183 pages. The document alternates between passages of almost apocalyptic moralizing and more technical language, including practical proposals for alleviating environmental problems. 
There's an urgent need. And of course, of course, it's all for the common good. Now, I didn't realize that the Pope was a scientist, let alone a meteorologist, and let alone a climatologist. Everything that these people have predicted has not come true. You remember by 20, 2010 or something, Manhattan was supposed to be underwater. Islands were supposed to be uh, underwater. None of that has happened. None of the predictions have happened. And yet they keep going with the same narrative. It's a consensus. Everybody knows this. We talked about this a while back. And something that everybody knows, um, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, And we've seen reports this year where the ice in the Arctic is thicker than it's ever been on record. And yet the articles talk about glaciers and ice being thinner than it's ever been. I don't know what the heck the Pope is getting involved in this for. Far be it from me to support uh, any declared presidential candidate. But uh, I think it was uh, Jeb Bush was asked about this. You know, uh, he's Catholic. Uh, I got no problem with that. That's his choice. But he was asked about this report, and he says, I hope I'm not going to get castigated for saying this by my priest back home, but I don't get economic policy from my bishops or my cardinals or my pope. Now, once again, not endorsing Jeb Bush or anything he says, couldn't agree with him more. Now, many on that side are going with the Pope's position, saying he is displaying the moral leadership that will be necessary in all sectors. Well, we'll see. I don't want to set global environmental policy from the Vatican. I'm sorry. Not what I want to do. Coming up, I want to talk real quickly about minimum wage and a stealth minimum wage that uh, is soon to be signed into law. You'll want to hear this. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, all around the country, uh, hardly a day goes by that we're not hearing about some city, some state, some county putting in place, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks. How we went from seven and a quarter to 1010. Remember President Obama in the State of the Union address came out and said, well, we got to raise the minimum wage, federal minimum wage to 1010. I always wondered how they got the 10 cents, but uh, uh, not a concern now. But anyway, we jumped to $15 awful quick. That's more than doubling the current minimum wage. Seattle, City of Seattle Council did that and uh, phased it, or is phasing it in over a few years. I think uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco is doing that. Uh, Connecticut. Uh, communities in Connecticut are doing some goofy things with minimum wage. And 
you know, it's I hate to use the word general consensus, but every economist you talk to, every long term data you look at tells us that when you raise the minimum wage, you not only increase unemployment, you unemploy the very people that you're trying to employ. Look at what's going on right now in the economy. Jobs are being created each month. Uh, More people are, are working each month. But the demographic of the people taking those jobs is not young people. The highest demographic, the most jobs are going to people over the age of 54. Now, there's several reasons for that. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But if you look at that, you you, you immediately start thinking, you know what? Uh, It's a shame that somebody over 54 has to take a job. Well, not really. Um, They're willing to work, and they create value, and, and they got bills to pay. But what's really happening is employers, and I'm an employer, so I know this firsthand. Employers are trying to get the most bang for the buck that they can from their employees. And I will hire someone in their 50s who have some experience, have a work ethic, understand that they have to show up on time, understand that they have to dress properly, communicate well, before I'll spend that kind of money hiring someone 24 or 22 or 21 that doesn't have those characteristics, that doesn't bring that value to the table. Now, the the argument is constantly around the term living wage. To me, the dialogue needs to be around economics 101. The higher the cost of something, the lower the demand. So when you raise the minimum wage, you lower the demand for people to earn that wage. Now, minimum wages have been around for a long time. I think back in the the late 30s, 1930s, that uh, uh, we started in on the minimum wage. And through all of that time, it's been proven over and over and over again that when you raise the minimum wage, you unemploy people. Now, at seven twenty-five an hour, that's the current federal minimum wage, uh, a 40-hour work week, a um, little over $15,000 a year. Now, that's below the federal poverty line of 15930 but it's supposed to be those level of jobs, the fast food, low paying jobs are designed for entry level workers. It's designed to train people about work, about being on time, about doing the job properly, about communicating with fellow workers and managers, about serving the customer. That's what it's designed for. It's not designed to serve or support a family 
of four. McDonald's is always in the news about minimum wage, minimum wage, minimum wage. They're trying to get uh, $15 an hour for McDonald's workers. You know what? I haven't been to McDonald's in a long time. I haven't been to a fast food place in a long time. But the last time I was there, I distinctly remember um, this is not a uh, a worker that I would hand my card to and say, hey, why don't you come down to my office? I'll give you a job and pay you more. Generally speaking, people can earn what they're worth. If I'm an employer and I'm paying $15 an hour, I got to make $25, $30, $40 an hour in value from that worker. A worker's labor is no different than any other commodity or raw material. I have to make a profit from hiring that employee. And if I don't, then I can't have the employee. Now, people come out and say, well, you raise the minimum wage, that will force businesses to replace them with robots and technology. Well, the fact is that doesn't force businesses to do that. What it does, it makes it economically viable for businesses to do that. Many, many jobs can be replaced with technology and robots today, but it takes capital. And a business owner has to allocate that capital to its best use for the company. At $7.25 an hour, I can hire people cheaper than I can replace them with technology at McDonald's. But at $15 an hour, you know what? Technology suddenly becomes cheaper than the employee. McDonald's is rolling out, I think I read this week, 7,000 electronic ordering stations where you can order your food and pay for it without an employee. And that's due to the pressure they're receiving to pay people 15 bucks an hour. Now it's economically viable for a company like McDonald's to switch over to technology rather than people. Now, personally, personally, I think the minimum wage ought to be zero. I think that each and every person should have the freedom to negotiate the value of their own labor. After all, that's all we have. That's all we have as an individual is the value we bring to the table. And that's through our labor and through our brain. Now, that being said, that gives an opportunity also, if the minimum wage was zero, gives an opportunity to people to work for free if they like. Would you like to work for free for anybody? I would. I wouldn't mind working for Bill Gates all day long for a while just to see how his brain works and how he does things. Warren Buffett, maybe. Maybe not. Michael Dell. If Steve Jobs was alive, I'd like to work with him for a while. You know, a while back, I interviewed Marcus Lemonis on the show. 
He's the uh, entrepreneur that owns Camper World, has the show The Profit. And he said to me, he finds it fascinating that people are willing to leave $100,000 a year salary jobs to come work for him at thirty grand. Well, why would they do that? It's because hanging around Marcus Lemonis all day, every day, is worth seventy grand to some people to learn what he has learned over his career. But if someone came to me and said, geez, I'd like to work for you for free, I can't hire them. I cannot have them work in my company for free. No matter how much they learn, no matter how much value they get from working here, I can't do it. It's against the law. I have to pay them. Now, that's getting a lot of resistance around the country, and we're going to see the the consequences of that. We're already seeing the consequences of businesses closing, expansions not being uh, executed. We're, we're seeing that, and we're going to see more and more of it. But a couple of things I wanted to point out. President Obama signed another executive order. I don't know who created executive orders in history, but we ought to go back and slap them, don't you think? Anyway. He signed an executive order that essentially raises the qualification for overtime pay for salaried people. Currently, if someone's working 40 hours a week and they're making less than $23,660 a year, anything over 40 hours, the employer has to pay them time and a half. President Obama, in his infinite wisdom with his pen, and his phone issued an executive order to update the regulation to $50,000. So anybody on salary earning $50,000 or less, anything over 40 hours, the employer has to pay them time and a half. Now listen to this from the labor secretary, Tom Perez. Millions of salaried workers have been left without the guarantee of time and a half pay for the extra hours they spend on the job and away from their families. Labor Secretary's concerned about how much time people spend with their families. Right. Right. This is going to have the same consequences as raising the minimum wage. This is a way of raising the minimum wage. So it's... It's a stealthy way to increase the cost to the employer. It's going to unemploy more people. It's already happening. goes into effect soon, and it's going to have the opposite effect that government thinks it's going to have. People are not going to... Pay time and a half to their salaried employees. Not going to happen. They're going to cut them back or automate with technology. Coming up, you care where your food comes from? I do. We're going to find out what Congress did this week to change that for both of us. We'll talk about that next. Gary Raspin. An economy of one.
Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, once again, once again, the federal government has illustrated to us, actually twice again, the federal government has illustrated to us this week that you are too stupid to take care of your own body. First thing that happened this week is the FDA came out and they banned trans fat or nearly banned trans fat. That's partially hydrogenated vegetable fats. They're knocking trans fats off the generally recognized as safe list. Now, this is a big deal. First of all, it's an illustration of their paternalism. Like high-calorie foods, alcoholic beverages, trans fats have marked risk when consumed in quantity, large quantities over a long period of time, smaller risk in moderate and occasional use, and tiny risk when used in tiny quantities. But the FDA doesn't care about tiny quantities or tiny risks, okay, no matter how well disclosed. So you can't make that decision. They're going to make it for you. Furthermore, the public doesn't agree. Recent polls found that majorities of all political groups felt that consumers should be left free to choose what they eat when it comes to trans fats. Even in places like New York and California, my goodness. Now, I believe the public is perfectly capable of recognizing and acting on nutritional decisions on its own. Trans fats have gone out of style lately, and consumption has dropped by 85% as consumers have made the choice to shun them. Now, government doesn't always know what's best for us, nor do its friends in public health. Um, are, are trans fats bad for cardiovascular? Maybe. Let me do my research and I will decide. Two main things that bother me on this. One, it's the proverbial camel's nose under the tent. If they get this through, so you can never consume trans fats ever again, the next step is salt, sugar, caffeine, anything else they can come up with. And it'll end up in court deciding instead of you and me deciding what we want to eat and what we want to keep in our body. Secondly, and more importantly, this is very important, hydrogenated vegetable fats or trans fats make donuts taste really good. And quite honestly, if donuts don't taste good anymore, I'm, I'm not sure why I'm alive. I mean, uh, donuts are, 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 you know, I mean, they're manna from heaven. I mean, they're, they're just terrific. Why mess with that? Really? Now, that being said, you know me and the FDA, don't want them to be my father. I don't want them to decide. But the House voted this week, late Wednesday, to remove country of origin labels on beef, pork, and chicken that's sold in the U.S. Now, why? Why? Well, it shows discrimination against animals from Mexico and Canada. Now, God forbid animals from Mexico and Canada are discriminated against. What a, a uh, country of origin label, or cool, as it's sometimes referred to, country of origin label, 
what they do is they, they, they're responsible for labeling where the animal was born, raised, and slaughtered so that you know the country of origin for your food, for your, your meat. Now, this came about because Canada and Mexico are suing the United States on a range of products, uh, including meat, like I talked about, wine, chocolate, my goodness, anybody who sues us over chocolate ought to get what they deserve, jewelry and furniture. Now, jewelry and furniture, I could care less where it comes from. Um, that, that means nothing to me. But it's interesting on the country of origin because this is very, very important. And this was enacted in 2002, uh, one of the farm bills. And uh, they've came out and said, well, you know, it really hasn't made any difference health-wise to us. What they're really concerned about is being sued by Canada and Mexico. Now, once again, not a big fan of the FDA. Don't want them in my life. But when it comes to meat like that, I mean, do you really trust Mexico especially? I mean, Canada, I kind of trust them. But Mexico, do you really think that the diseased cows aren't going to get slaughtered, packed up, and shipped to us? Really think that? I mean, if you eat meat from a specific country in the world today, you're not allowed to give blood ever. Not allowed to be an organ donor ever because of mad cow disease now back at the turn of the century you, you, rich people were defined or identified as being overweight they could turn food i'm talking about the last century not 2000 today rich people are defined as being able to know where their meat came from and what's in it i personally buy my beef from a local farmer that raises organic hormone-free steers now i'm not really interested in getting to know my beef on a personal level i'm not i'm not going to name it dave and then have it slaughtered and butchered and put in my freezer and tell my wife i'm going to have a steak from dave tonight you know i don't want to get that up close and personal but i am interested in where it comes from how it was raised what it was fed and uh the quality that i'm receiving and now congress has taken that away from most of us so what's it going to do? Now, well, some people, it'll do nothing. You and me, I think we ought to start checking on our own where our meat's coming from, where the food's coming from that we're eating, and how it was raised and what went into it. A lot of research about this stuff. It's very, very important for your long-term health that you know what's going in. And uh, Congress is limiting that for you. I want you to have a great day. I want you to be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.